at this time, if you would join me in reading the Word of God. Our scripture reading today will come from Genesis chapter 2. If you have your Bible, please turn to that. If not, we have the monitors for your viewing. Genesis 2, verses 3 through 15. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The first, the name of the first is the Pishon. It is, a, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the se- second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Amen, yeah. Well, there is a running joke at this church that whenever I get up here, there is about half the attendance as there normally is. And we planned this series out earlier in the summer. And I think Pastor Up and Pastor Kerry knew that there'd be only a few of us here. But it's okay, because... I have a few fans here that I bring with me anywhere. Oh, man. Let's open God's Word together to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, if you haven't opened there already. Now, yesterday, I was going to get my hair cut, and I'm pretty cheap. So all I do is I go to the haircuttery on Milwaukee, and I was also hoping that that would be a place where I could build a gospel-presenting relationships. But so far, all the people who've uh, worked there have left since I've gotten there, so it's fairly useless. So now it's just convenient for me to go there. But yesterday, as I got in the car, uh, I immediately pulled out my phone to put on music. Now, uh, the haircuttery is about... Uh, ten blocks from my house. So I made it through about one song before I arrived at the hairdresser. And then, on the way home, I did the same thing. Pulled out my phone, and I put on music. And I realized, no matter how short the trip, I always put my music on. I did it this morning. I made it through half of a song because we live five blocks from the church, but I still put on the music. And I realized that I always do it because... If I turn on the radio, it's always the same songs. I get so sick of it. I've heard Justin Bieber say he's sorry too many times to count. I've greeted Adele every time she says hello. 
I get so sick of those songs. Take away the fact that most of them have inappropriate content or words that I don't want to hear, but even without that, they're still obnoxiously overplayed. And so when I leave the radio on, I find myself all of a sudden just starting to sing them because I've heard them so frequently. And my guess is many of you do the same thing. If you walk into McDonald's, if the song is playing, you'll start humming along because you don't realize it, but that song has been so ingrained in our minds. If the tune comes on, we join Adele in our manly falsettos and say hello from the other side to the car next to us. These top 40 songs become ingrained in our memory, whether good or bad. The words sitting ready to be quoted. When we think about the idea of work and of rest, they are much like that overplayed song. The entire world knows the tune of work and the rhythm of rest. We all know it like a top 40 radio station. It's being played over and over, drilled into our brains song that says work is all about pursuing what I desire. Those around me are tools to be taken advantage of. People who can advance my cause, make me look better, make my life profitable. You and I are best friends at the office because I think you are my ticket to a more secure position. Gossip and slander slither out of our mouths with biting accusations uh, spoken so that we can pursue what we desire song that's even introduced early in life. As kids are told to clean their room or to do something with the offer of playing a video game, getting ice cream, or being able to go play with a friend. They don't care about how well they do the work. They care about their personal goal, their pursuit. To indulge in the self-satisfaction that our society has touted as rest The other half of this song that is played, the beat of the song that is pounded into our brains, is that work is always the means to our ends. Work is what we do so that we can get to the indulgent rest. Rest that would be better called uh, gluttony, lust, selfishness, or debauchery. This is what our culture says, isn't it? That true rest is whatever makes me feel better. If you want to, at the end of the day, after you've made it through work, turn off your brain and dissolve into a TV-induced romantic fantasy, go for it. If you want to spend your entire paycheck, no matter what else is going on, and buying a new car, because that makes you feel good and feel rested, go ahead. If after work you want to go to a bar and get drunk and slander your boss, you deserve it because you worked, and now you deserve to rest the tune that is played and shouted on every show and every uh, song that we uh, get through work so that we can rest. Work is the necessary means to our end, to satisfy ourselves. But as we listen to this song more closely, we'll hear that something's not quite right. As if the entire world has so frequently heard this song that we've grown numb to the fact that it's actually distorted. That it sounds like it's been ripped off, a poorly pirated copy of another lesser known song. A song of work and rest that has a different tune. A unique beat. 
One that when heard is immediately recognized as something different, something that is not played often because it doesn't sound like anything else. This song, of course, is the one displayed by God in the first chapters of Genesis. The melody of work established in the seven days of creation then passed down onto Adam in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. The rhythm of rest practiced by God at the end of creation, a model for mankind to follow. This song, not tainted by the sinful world, has been in existence since the beginning. But since it has been ripped off, distorted, and betrayed by the world in pursuit of selfishness. But this morning, as we look back into the second chapter of Genesis, we'll see that we are called to listen and learn the tune of work and the rhythm of rest that is laid out by God. To embrace the song that God set out to be learned while simultaneously rejecting the distortion embraced by our culture. So this morning we'll look at the first few verses of Genesis 2 to see God's model of rest and how it opposes the world's. And then we'll look at the rest of our passage to see that work is so much more than just a tedious means to an end in the hopes that we can go out from here singing not the world's song of work and rest, but instead pursuing God's desire for work and rest. So let's begin by reading again our passage in Genesis 2, starting in verse 1. Everything's okay up there. No one's hurt. Don't worry. Genesis 2, starting in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, but Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east from Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We can imagine our passage begins with the rising of the sun on the seventh day. The six days that have preceded it have each brought unimaginable newness, starting with light and ending, as we saw last week, with the pinnacle of creation, man final verse of chapter 1 hinted that the seventh day will hold something different. For on the sixth day, God looks over all that he has made and he says, it is very good. 
in the beginning of the seventh day, then we are expectant for what will happen next. And we are not disappointed. For on this day, God establishes and models perfectly for the first time true rest. And so what we find as we look at God's model of rest in these first three verses is that true rest is not anchored in our own desires, but in God's. Being made in God's image, we look to Him to display the perfect model of what it means to rest so that we might build a picture of how our own rest should look. In the arrival of the seventh day, we first see that rest requires stopping. When the Hebrew word for rest is brought up in the Old Testament, it could be communicating three different things. The first is the occasion when someone has died. When David dies uh, in First Kings, in First Kings two, it says David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. Likewise, uh, the pattern of kings that fall at the end of the uh, biography of their life, it says that they rested with their ancestors. Now, obviously, God did not create complete or complete creation and then die. So we turn to the second meaning, and that is the meaning of the idea of Sabbath. And though this idea is being developed in this passage, it's not absent. This is also not the meaning that we are after. The third meaning that comes up in the Old Testament is to literally stop doing something. To stop participating in a certain activity. In our narrative thus far, and as we saw last week, God was creating during the first six days. But now, in the seventh day, it says He rested from that activity. He stopped on this day. He, in verse 2, rested from all the work that he had done. We can picture all of creation out of focus in the background with God stopping purposefully and choosing to rest. The tune of rest begins with stopping. Like the old saying that was spoken to me too often as a child says, your mouth has to close before your ears can listen. You have to stop talking before you can start listening. Rest requires a purposeful separation from that which came before, setting down what was in our hands, turning away from uh, what was before and putting it behind us. To rest as God desires us to rest, we must be first willing to stop doing what we are doing. We have to acknowledge that rest, uh, that to rest things as great as they might be, have to be put aside. God rested from His perfect creation. He stopped creating. He purposefully ceased so that he could rest. Our rest, too, must begin with stopping. As we note God turning away from his creation, we also must acknowledge that he turned away with it in completion. Creation was once and for all finished. Three times in these three verses it says the phrase, His work that he had done. If you were here in our summer series on Psalms and Proverbs, you'll remember that if something is repeated three times, it emphasizes the totality of the idea. God is said to be holy, holy, holy. In the passage we heard this summer in Psalm 32, uh, we emphasize the idea of forgiveness where it said, our transgressions are forgiven, our sin is covered, our sin is not counted against us. It emphasized the totality of God's forgiveness for us. Here in the passage, we see that God has perfectly completed the work. He will never need to go back to finish it. As we think about our own lives, we have to know that we will never here on this earth perfectly rest in that way, having completed things. We are in the midst of life. 
But, as we think of God uh, resting in completion, we have to think of the benefit of this in our own lives. I will admit that sometimes in the mornings I will start to do, uh, start to read God's Word. I will start to pray, but I will do it while I'm in the midst of making coffee or finishing getting ready. And my mind is never able to fully focus. I imagine that many of us can relate to this. When we're time, trying uh, to rest, whether it be uh, on our own, whether it be attending small group or coming here in the morning, when stuff is not completed, our mind is divided. They may not necessarily be bad things, but completion aids rest so that we're able to stop and focus on resting. When God rests, we find that it's not just stopping, but is also choosing to set aside a specific time to start resting. God takes this specific day, the seventh day, and on it rests. He did not have to rest. He was not tired after creation. He did not need a nap, but He chose to stop and to begin resting. As we think on doing the same, we find that God established the rhythm of rest by declaring the seventh day holy. This set into motion a practice of regular rest being built into life by God. And this establishment beats so against everything else, the rhythm of everything else, both, both then and now. Back then, all of their schedules and and rituals and religious activities were built into the cycles of the moon. Life and worship and other ancient uh, accounts tell of how the sun and moon dictated their lives. But our God, the creator of the sun and moon, declares that every seventh day, regardless of what the moon is doing, is holy. He sets apart a specific time as holy, a time to worship. But in declaring this day as holy, what does it mean for our own rest? When God declared something as holy in the Bible, it was something that was set apart for Him. The Israelites were His holy people set apart for Him. It says in Deuteronomy 7, 6, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. They were declared holy by God and thus belonged to Him. They were His. The prophets of the Old Testament were also frequently called holy men because they were devoted to God. So in God declaring the seventh day as holy, He declares that that day belongs to Him. This is why we set aside specific time to gather like we are now and fellowship and worship together to devote the time to God, to declare it as holy as He has made it. But what does this say about our Sunday? I think we would all admit that we swing to one side of a pendulum or the other. We would swing to the side that says, uh, we can't do anything on Sunday because Sunday is so sacred that I don't even want to pick up a pencil for fear that that is work. Any Moody students who made it here this morning are saying, that's not me. A, A Sunday without writing a paper is impossible. But on the other side is where we would find the most of the rest of us, where Sunday, the seventh day, is completely devoid of meaning other than a few hours on Sunday morning. We kind of deviate off of the race course to do church, and then we rejoin with the rest of our culture in the afternoon, forgetting that this day has any sort of significance at all, doing whatever we feel like we want only using Sabbath as an excuse to not make dinner, instead ordering pizza. I've done it, I'll admit it. 
But I would say in God declaring this day holy, there should be some significance. This day should belong in its entirety to God. But where we land somewhere in the middle, uh, that, so that uh, in our afternoon activities, so that after church, whatever we are doing, we are still acknowledging that this day is sa- the Sabbath and it belongs to Him. Devoting ourselves to rest of some kind. As God commands the Israelites in the Ten Commandments to honor the Sabbath, keeping the day of rest holy, so too must we continually devote it to God. So this brings us to how exactly it looks to rest. We have so far seen that it requires stopping. It encourages completion. It demands that we set aside a time for rest. But in these verses, we don't see a play-by-play of how God was resting. So how do we find how rest looks? The answer is back in God declaring the day as holy, devoted to Him. Rest is found in God because God is the only character in this story, in this account. We don't really see it as clearly, but when we look through the rest of the Old and New Testament, we find that consistently rest is uh, characterized by communion with God. The prophet Elijah in 1 Kings basically has a meltdown where an angel has to come and feed him before God meets him. It's the story where God is not in the fire, he's not in the earthquake, and then in that still small voice, God meets him. He rests and needs the presence of God. Daniel, we find in 1 Kings, when faced with the pressure and the possibility of the lions, then finds himself on his knees in prayer. Then in the New Testament, the verse that Carrie quoted last week from Matthew, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is found in God, a devoting time to Him. Acknowledging that our purpose is to be recharged in Him. And this goes against the tune of our culture that says it's all about our feeling better how we want. Indulgence is not rest. Self-gratification is not rest. Instead, we find rest as we devote time to being with God, stopping so that we might recharge in Him, learning the rhythm of rest by taking time that we will know will refocus our lives to Him. In this, it would be easy to get sucked into saying, I'm going to spend my 15 minutes every morning, and that is my rest. But we must also acknowledge that there are many other ways that we can rest. A meal with another family from church where you are both building one another up and focusing on the body of Christ can be a time of rest in the midst of craziness that is not focused on Him. A time when you go off by yourself. uh, Pastor Kerry does this sometimes. He'll drive up uh, to some far place and just take a walk. And it's a time where he can refocus his life the practice of stopping and finding time to spend with God because in Him we find rest. As we relearn this rhythm of rest, as we look to God as our perfect example, it's also unavoidable to notice that rest came after work. The two are tied together and similarly our rest is tied to our work. As we learn the rhythm of rest, we also have to hear the counterculture tune of work. For the tune that is declared in our culture is so opposite of what we hear in God's Word to the point that it's hard for us to first hear and understand. Work is our God-given purpose. Work is our God-given purpose. If we don't begin here, 
and understand and believe this, we will not be able to transform the way we think and go about our work. So the rest of our passage this morning lays the groundwork for showing how we, like Adam, have been given by God work as our purpose. What we find first in the 4th through 14th verses of Genesis 2 is the first proof or defense for why our work is our God-given purpose. God, in giving us work, prepared everything first for us. For my wife's birthday this past year, I bought her one of those uh, painting class things where everyone paints the same picture. Not my cup of tea, but she loved it. Thankfully, when we arrived, all the brushes that we needed were there, all the paints that were needed were there, the canvas was there, the easel was set up, the chair was there. All we had to do was sit and attempt to paint. Similarly, God has brought us to work, but He has set out everything before us. He has prepared it all so that we can come and fulfill our purpose. As we look at this, we first have to look at the heading that is found in verse 4. Where it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, there are headings like this one. Where there's a brief explanation of what is to come. If you have your Bible out and you just turn one page to the beginning of Genesis chapter 5, you'll see that the same thing is said in verse 1 there where it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Then if you go a little bit further in Genesis 6, 9, it says these are the generations of Noah and it gives the same kind of description to catch us up to what's about to go on. We don't reread this wondering, are we about to start all over here again? It's the heading of what's about to happen. And this tells us that we are about to zoom in further on the account of Adam and Eve. If you were here last week, you remember Carrie, uh, Pastor Kerry saying that we kind of went through on one level through the first five days of creation, and then when it came to man, it was like everything slowed down and we zoomed in. In the verses that follow here, it's as if we are in uh, Google Maps and then we zoom in further to Google Street View so we can closely see on a personal level what, level what happened in the sixth day when God created man. This isn't a restart of the creation story forcing us to doubt what we heard last week. It's an account where we can see more clearly how God sets the stage for Adam. So what we see in verses 5 and 6 is a language that describes the preparation that happened. The land has yet to be worked. No small plant has yet sprung up. In other words, something's, not, something's ready, but something's not there yet. It implies a waiting for something to be done, like an Iowa field waiting for the next season of corn to be planted. The reason that it's this way, it says, in verse 6, is that there is a man not yet there to do it. God had put in place the paints and the canvas, but he had not yet put in place the painter. The preparation for man's work continues in verse 8 and 9 with the description of the creation of the Garden of Eden. God specifically plants this place to serve the needs of Adam. In verse 8, we see that it is his home. In verse 10, it says that a river flowed out of Eden. So we know that there was places other than Eden. Meaning God chose a specific place and was preparing Adam for it. We also see that it says that every tree that was uh, beautiful to sight. Every tree that was beneficial for food was there. All that was given to him 
was to prepare him to be able to do his work. And the no, this is no less true of us today. Just because we do not see trees popping up for us uh, to go out, just because food is not there for the first time, does not mean God has not put in the same preparation for our lives as well. God goes before us and sets ahead all that we need to thrive. In light of all this, we then in verse 7 have the intimate account of man being created. It says that God forms man from the dust. We get the idea of how close and intimate this is. Everything else was spoken into being, but God carefully forms the man, crafted him with care, created in his image, and then it says he gave his very breath to him, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, displaying this close, intimate, loving picture. We have the very breath of God that commenced our lives. No other No other part of creation has the same description. There's no further account of lions being created. We don't see what happened. Uh, We are not zoomed in to palm trees being created, but we see mankind being created because there was careful care and consideration put into it. And we think, when we think about this with work in mind, it's clear that we have been specifically designed by God for the work that we are about to be assigned. God did not make us in His image without purpose. He carefully crafted us to serve Him through work. Each one of us is made all human, but uniquely so that we might perfectly serve a purpose that He has set before us. He's perfectly prepared us to work. And He has perfectly made us so that we might do it. So that as we arrive in verse 15, we already know that He's ready for us. And that He's already ready for Adam. And then what we see is that here in this verse, He has specifically given us the job of working. It says that God put Adam in the garden to work and keep it. He prepared the place and then He specifically put him there to do the job, to work the garden, to keep it. And this is where it all comes together for us. Because we would agree that like Adam, we were designed by God. We will uh, heartily say, yes, we believe that God prepared a place for us just like He prepared a, a life for Adam. But then we tend to stop and more align our work with the post-sin-infested world that we live in rather than I- identifying it with God's specific purpose for us. But this isn't the case. God in His perfect creation made us to work. This is our purpose. The fruitfulness that we talked of last week that is commanded of mankind in chapter 1 also pertains to work. Work is not a result of the fall. It is a result of God's perfect design. We are first exposed to our God as Creator. The entire first chapter of the Bible details His working and creating the world. Just as he modeled rest, he also first modeled how work is supposed to look. He created us to work just as he worked. And with this in mind, the places we work, whether it's a 9-to-5 job, whether it's a part-time job, whether it's volunteering here at Good News, whether it's raising a family, all of these things are work that God has set before us that are part of our purpose. They're work that has been given to us by God. 
And knowing this should affect how we approach and go about our work. First, if work is part of our God-given purpose, we have to stop the mentality that we just make it through work. That's the tune of the world. That I make it through to get to rest. We need to stop encouraging one another within the body of Christ even to just make it to the end of the week, make it to the end of the day, make it to the end of this chapter of your job situation. We need to encourage one another how to thrive in it. This is what we were created to do. We were made to work. How might we look at where God has placed us in this time and ask, how can we embrace it and become effective in this work? Second, we have to acknowledge that our purpose in this world is not what the world would call pleasure. Last week, Carrie said that we have been created for a purpose. When we are created, uh, we are supposed to become fruitful and multiply. And here in verse 15, we see that God placed Adam in the perfect place where he could accomplish that goal. He was placed in the Garden of Eden. He wasn't placed on a beach where he could tan uh, and, and relax. Likewise, we have been placed in the perfect uh, position so that we can complete our work not so that we can pursue pleasure. And then finally, we are called to work well. We are not just to go into it with a different mentality. We are, going, uh, we are called to perform as well with a different standard. In the second verse of this chapter, it says that God finished His work. And it uses the same word that is uh, used for Adam's work. God completed His work and saw, uh, and as we saw repeatedly in the first chapter, He saw that it was good. God completed His work to a high standard. And having been made in the image of God, you and I are also called to hold ourselves to the same high standard of our Maker rather than the standard of the world around us. We obviously cannot achieve the same perfection that God graced the world with, but we still pursue after knowing that this is what God desires of us. All of this is only possible if we begin with the fact that we are working to fulfill our God-given purpose rather than working to please or satisfy ourselves or people around us. Holding ourselves to a higher standard starts with a higher desire that moves beyond just getting to the weekend or indulging in some self-gratification. But I will be the first to admit that this sounds incredibly idealistic. It makes it sound easy as if we can just switch our thinking and that work will be way easier. But we know that often this is not the case. Work, whether a vocational job, whether a serving in ministry, whether a family can be uh, incredibly frustrating. It can feel the opposite of what we just described above. You can say, there's no way that God placed me here in this time and He obviously didn't prepare a place for me. And we begin to listen to the song of the world. That there must be another easier way. A way that seemingly satisfies us more and more and allows us more pleasure that feels like rest. And we begin to go back to that top 40 song that we've heard over and over again. To go back to making it through work with our self-satisfaction in mind. To pursue our own desires. But if this is how we begin to be tempted, we must look at the warning given to Adam in the last verses of our passage. 
in verses 16 and 17 where it says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Giving in to the desire for self-gratification and pursuing our own desires results in death. God has given purpose so that we might work for His glory and rest in Him. But choosing to reject that purpose is embracing the death that Adam immediately experienced in his own failure. What looks like an easy way out will eventually prove to be a dead end and what felt like rest will eventually result in emptiness. This is the song that the world is learning. One that cheapens life and results in meaninglessness. Growing up in Japan, in Tokyo, I saw this constantly with businessmen who were constantly pursuing fulfillment but overcome with a lack of purpose would take their own lives by jumping in front of trains. They couldn't achieve it and it spiraled down, ending in death. It might not be as graphic, but this is how the world's song ends. An inability to satisfy despite a constant pursuit of what we think will our desire. Self-gratification will be needed more and more until nothing we thought would help will satisfy. So how do we move beyond feeling like we are trudging through mud with every step? Stuck in a battle as we work, rejecting the desire to be sucked into the song of the world, how can we do it? We must remember that we are not alone in being given a purpose. But instead we have a Savior who, while on this earth, did the work tasked to Him by God the Father. We are reminded in John 6.38 where Jesus, speaking to a crowd, says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. He lays out to the crowd that God the Father gave Him a job to complete. And we know He did it perfectly. Philippians 2 reminds us that He was obedient to even death on a cross. He knows the struggle while working in the face of opposition. While the rest of the culture is living according to a different song, we know He was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, but He remained faithful. So as we work learning the tune set by God before us, we do so not on our own, but knowing that God hears and knows. And that He has given us His Holy Spirit that we might not give in that we can continue to fight against this song. And as we do this confidently, we look towards resting in Him. Not going forward, not engaging in work well, without setting aside time where we can commune and abide with God to be recharged and refocused. Stopping from things that we are doing, putting aside what is going on so that we might rest. Abiding with Him. We learn to rest as God rests. But we also do so knowing that there is much more ahead. For the last aspect of God's rest is that this rest that we experience here on earth, the temporary rest that we get for a time is just looking forward to God's perfect rest in heaven. That God establishing the uh, pattern of rest in this world is just giving us a taste and helping us to understand what true final rest will be like. So that as we strive to work for His glory, we do so with the great end goal in sight.
entering perfect rest with Him in heaven, being united with our Lord and never needing to pause for rest again because we will have entered it forever. So as we go out today, ask how you think about your work. Does it ring to the rhythm of the world? Or are you learning the tune that God set forth in creation? Are you going about each day focused on how you're going to fulfill your own desires, fulfill your purpose, or are you looking at where God has placed you? Learning the tune of God's desire for work and practicing a rhythm of resting in Him. Setting aside time to recharge in Him. Not fulfilling selfish desires, but pursuing intimacy with our Holy Lord. And knowing that we look forward to that day when our work here on this earth, as given by God, will be complete. And we'll be able to rest with Him perfectly in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we...